Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I'm in the studio with Kevin Farrell, who's got on some dull, dull shoes, but some pretty exciting socks today. Uh, as always, we have to check in on his wardrobe. So Kevin is our producer and our spiritual leader. Uh, not all shows have a spiritual leader, but we do here at the Arts Hour. It is Kevin and has been Kevin from the very beginning for all these years, and we appreciate that. My guest today is my buddy Cole Furlow. Welcome, Cole. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Cole is a musician, singer-songwriter, producer, arranger, writer, <laughs> photographer. Check, check, uh, check. Bon vivant, uh, band leader, <laughs> all yeah. these things. Right. So, so where did you, where'd you come from, Cole? Where, where, where did you grow up? And I was born in Flowood at uh, Women's Hospital and right. uh, born and raised in Jackson. Um, I went to uh, First Presbyterian Day School for elementary school, Jackson Prep for high school, um, a few years at Ole Miss, uh, a few, <laughs> and uh, ended up graduating at Delta State University. And did you go to Delta State ultimately because of the Delta Music Institute? Yeah, I did. I did. I'm um, I'm kind of lucky in the sense that our family, uh, we're really close with Trisha Walker. And, um, you know, when she took over over there, it was kind of a no-brainer for me to go and try to figure out how to do this thing that I was always wanting to do. You know? Which was play music or write stories or make, <laughs> make art or which? Or um, all of the above? I think it started as, you know, wanting to be a a musician, a rock star of some sorts. Um, and then quickly I realized um, that I really wanted to be the man behind the board and record the stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I found out about some super producers that I was really in love with, and um, I loved the music that they made. And it just kind of went from there. And I knew that DMI kind of had the keys to that door, um, at least in kickstarting the process. Um, and you know, I just wasn't really doing anything at Ole Miss at the time. I took a semester off. I was uh, dishwashing at Ajax Diner, and I was kind of, you know, in this zone of, well, I want to perform. I want to do more with that, and I know there's more I can do with it. Um, and, you know, Tricia came in and just kind of uh, gave us some direction of getting me there and moved to Cleveland, and I loved it. And uh, when you were at Ole Miss, were you in bands? Did you performed there. Yeah, I mean, I was I was not really in bands. Uh -huh. um, I was uh, really in the frat house. You know, oh, okay. I really wasn't. Um, you know, I, I would go and see a lot of bands. Um, I became friends with a lot of locals there that introduced me to music that I'd never really thought um, I'd ever really love. And then that stuff kind of became integral to me growing and developing a very specific taste in things. Um, Tyler Keith, um, Johnny Valiant, uh, Talbot Adams, those guys were, um, they were pretty integral in me learning about the kinks and Johnny Thunders and television and talking heads and things that became staples in my life later on. You know? mm -hmm. So when you were in Oxford and hanging out with those aforementioned right. uh, influences, <clears throat> is that when you went into Sweet Tea and made a record, or was it after Delta State? No, it was after. Um, <clears throat> so after Delta State, I uh, graduated. I moved out to California for a very short stint. By short, I mean like a few months. Um, <laughs> very short. My, uh, Did you my, unpack? Well, no, I no. unpacked, <laughs> and I had a great spot, but um, a few things happened to me that made me have to come home. My street caught on fire. That was one massive thing that yeah. ended up having yeah. to come home. But 
Um, when I got back to Jackson. Well, here in Jackson, our streets don't catch on fire. Our streets flood. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, I ended up coming back to Jackson. I got an apartment in the 721 building, um, and uh, a bunch of my friends were starting the process of making music at home. Um, I had a job working for uh, the Morrison Brothers, and um, I had gear you know, at my disposal, and I was learning about this stuff, and that whole growth period um, was pretty big deal to me because uh, it was at the Morrison Brothers store that I kind of learned what I had, uh, I guess, implemented what I had learned at Delta State mm -hmm. on the gear at the store. Um, I had to talk about it. <laughs> right. I had to know about it. Um, so that stuff kind of helped. And then after years of being in Jackson, um, I started a band called Dead Gaze. Um, that's G-A-Z-E, Dead Gaze, like a stare. Um, and I ended up uh, having a little bit of success recording some music at home. Mm -hmm. um, I used really basic stuff, um, and I had some friends that would come by and help. And uh, through kind of building a little bit of a, of a fan base on the, on, you know, on the Internet and playing shows around Jackson and around the South a little bit, uh, I was offered a chance to uh, pretty much fulfill a dream that I've always had of recording at Sweet Tea. So um, that was after you'd uh, already been to Oxford, gone to Cleveland, right, and back to Jackson. Right, right. Then you're back to Oxford to record. Yeah, and, yeah. And if you would, t tell our listeners, some will know, some won't, exactly what Sweet Tea is and who these people are that created this yeah. space. So Sweet Tea, for a guy like me, was um, the absolute pinnacle in Mississippi. Um, it was a uh, million-dollar vintage real-deal recording studio with a— uh, very rare, extremely nice recording console made by Neve. Um, it was ran and owned by, uh, uh, what's his name? <laughs> I, 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 could, I could blank now, Dennis Herring. Yeah. Um, and Dennis uh, was a really successful producer on his own right, and um, he had Sweet Tea pretty much to, uh, to, bit, to get bigger bands into Oxford and let them experience the charm of the town and um, catch a little bit of the Oxford vibe. Uh, which was definitely a, um, how do I put this? It was, it was definitely a different change of direction for a lot of successful bands to come to Oxford right. and make a big recording for them in that studio. Um, and it had a very specific vibe. I try not to be one of those people that uses that word a lot, but I do. Um, it, vibe is a good word, and that place was vibey. You mm -hmm. know, it had uh, a very open kind of feel to it. The control room was a living room, essentially, with these really nice couches. Um, and it had every microphone you could ever want to use. It had every tape echo, every sampler, every synth. Um, you know, they had compressors that uh, Paul McCartney had used on, on, on Beatles records and things like that that were just so... Um, I guess, like, famous in my world, mm -hmm. you know. And when I was able to do it, I kind of didn't believe it at first. And uh, when we got there the first day, it just became nose of the grind. It's, you know, you got to get over the right. the you, you, you to, the topic feeling or whatever, this euphoria right. you're feeling. You got to get over it and, get you know, make a record. <laughs> you got to get busy because right. time is money exactly. in the studio. Exactly. Now, is, is that where Elvis Costello made a record? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Elvis Costello made a record there, Modest Mouse, The mm -hmm. Walkman. Um, Buddy Guy made an amazing record there. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it was just a— Was that um, his Grammy record? Yeah, I think Sweet Tea won a Grammy. Yeah, he yeah. named it Sweet Tea. And, yeah. Um, the first song off that record, if no one's ever heard it, um, it's Baby, Please Don't Leave. It's it's a Junior Kimbrough uh, cover that's <laughs> it's so cool. It's 
really fun how they kind of turned that song around for him. Um, but that's kind of what Sweet Tea did. Mm-hmm. You, um, in that old school way of using the studio for your recordings instead of just going there and capturing a moment in time, Sweet Tea had everything, you know. Right. And then there was Fat Possum, sort of the opposite. Yeah, Fat Possum was more of a label, um, Uh and they sent artists to Sweet Tea to to make records, I believe. Um, That's kind of how that worked. Mm -hmm. Um, Fat Possum's still going. I mean, they're slowly but surely building a massive empire of um, distributing records and putting out people. And, you know, I've got friends that work up there, and Fat Possum's an amazing thing for the state, you know. Is Sweet Tea still going? No, unfortunately, it's not. Dennis moved all the gear out to Los Angeles, and oh. um, they have a space downtown called DTLA. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's still the same kind of vibe from what I've understand or understood. I haven't seen it in person. You know? Now, the the record you made, was that Dead Gaze? Yeah, yeah. It was my second record. It's called Brain Holiday. Mm-hmm. And wasn't there a band called the Furloughs? <laughs> I don't know. I not not <laughs> no? under my family belt. No. Oh, okay. Seems like I saw a poster once. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Maybe sounds kind of Scottish, doesn't it, or something? Speak- <laughs> but speaking of your family, uh, your father was a band director, I believe, and yes, a musician. Sir. Yes, sir. And yeah. sort of had musical instruments around the house, and had to have been something of an influence. Yeah, in we that were. Direction. We were. I mean, me and my buddies were, were lucky to be able to have my father's tutelage around when I was coming up. Um, I still like to bounce things off of him, um, but he was a band director for forty something years. I think forty one years, forty one band camps in a row. That's how. That's how he. Man. That's how he um, kind of keeps the tab. <laughs> Where um, all was he a director? He was at Jackson Prep, uh, Newton County High Schools. Uh, I think he had a stint in Crystal Springs, uh, and then he ended it. At Colin in Wesson. Ah. And that's kind of where he parked. He ended up moving down to Brookhaven, so he's still down there. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You know, I grew up in the junior college world. I lived yeah. on a campus most of my right. uh, life in high school and college. My dad was, was in that world. In fact, I was through there this morning on my way back from <laughs> South Louisiana. I came through Macomb. Uh, speaking of baby, please don't go. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also Brookhaven as well. Um, but anyway, so, so, so that you've... You, had a chance to make this record or records, and, and then what becomes of your career? Um, do you continue to play? Didn't you tour all over the world at yeah. one time? I know you traveled extensively at one point. Yeah, we've toured a lot um, back in the day. Um, I guess in the day would be about five years ago. Well, that's um, a lot of days. But uh, I, I was in bands uh, that ended up getting a lot of touring action. Um, Dent May, who is a, also a fellow Jacksonian, mm-hmm. um, he had... Uh, a band that was kind of comprised of a bunch of members from Oxford. And um, we ended up going on tours with him. And I realized through the touring with that band that I could kind of um, parlay Dead Gaze tours with him too. Um, and we ended up kind of doing tandem tours. Um, and yeah, we went to Europe a bunch and we had a random uh, 48 hours in Shanghai, China. And uh, we we did a lot a lot of really wacky traveling, you know. What band was this, or was it um, just so, a tour of a mishmash of people? So it was it would be Dent May for a while, and then we'd get off the road with Dent, and then we'd go out with Dead Gaze. And okay, then we'd do you know um, each tour was about a month long or so, and um, you know the longest touring I ever did, which um, I don't really um, think it's good for anyone to really do it like this, but. Um, <laughs> 
We started in Europe, and I did one tour of Tent May and for a month, and then a week off, and then another month of Dead Gaze, and I was in Europe for two months, not in the same place for two days, and mm. I came back kind of a, you know, Fried. a, a pen doll. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> in a very predictable uh, situation. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. For the Arts Hour, I'm also the director of your Mississippi Arts Commission. And last Monday, I started a new gig here at MPB. I'm co-hosting the Monday morning food show called Deep South Dining with my buddy, Carol Puckett. So if you're not doing anything on Monday mornings besides redoing your sock drawer, you can tune in to um, Deep South Dining and hear us talk about food and people who make food and the art and craft of, of cooking. So my guest today on the Arts Hour is Cole Furlow. Welcome back, Cole. It's good to uh, good to be here. And uh, anything you want to say about the song we just played, or just want to move on <laughs> into? Uh, you just wrote it yesterday, so yeah, we can. We we don't have to spend too much time. I mean, I, it's it's new, and I really try to keep the um, the the songwriting thing alive as much as I can, even though there's times where I don't write songs. You right. Know, well, for busy people, there's a lot of things to do, and, right. and, and you're not only a, a musician, uh, but you have a day job, yeah. uh, a couple of them. Yeah, I've, I've got a few, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, you, uh, you do a little kitchen work, speaking of food. Yes, I do. You, uh, you do some sales stuff, and you, yep. you produce, mm-hmm. you, and you live and uh, have a studio in a historic warehouse in downtown Jackson. <laughs> Yeah, I do indeed. Um, yeah, I think that um, the sum—well, no—the sum of all of the, the jobs that I have right now are able to—they um, allow me to pay my rent. And if I didn't have all four of those, then things would be a little hairy for me, just trying to keep the art thing alive. Um, but yeah, you know, the the, the kitchen job is great. Uh, I enjoy kitchen work. Um, it's kind of where I started this whole process of playing music. It's working in kitchens. Um, and I enjoy, uh, you know, working for, I, I work for a screen printing company in the mornings and I help them, um, with sales. And, uh, if anyone ever needs t-shirts, come find me on the street, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm slinging them daily. Uh, and, you know, making music for film and commercial is something that I've always really had fun doing. It's a no brainer. And then my newest venture into the creative world is photography, which I really didn't think I was able to really do that. Um, but it took a few people in my life to kind of push me in that direction, and that's uh, that's what happened. So, regarding the photography, this is this is a new thing, or did did you know <laughs> Will Jackson when you were at, at Delta State and started fooling around with it? Or? Yeah, I'd, I'd met Will when I was at Delta State very briefly, and um, this uh, really pretty girl worked for him, and that really really pretty girl just ended up being my fiance, um, and. Over years of me being at Delta State, I would go to the bean counter, that coffee shop there, and mm-hmm. she would serve me cappuccinos, and I didn't think she really knew who I was at all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, through her working with Will and uh, me being an admirer of Will's work, um, I was able to kind of find my way through um, this creative world with the with the camera, and um, it's kind of my new obsession. I I find a lot of joy in taking photos, and I've always done it, you know. Do you use your um, digital stuff or do you use old-fashioned so, film? What do you do? When we would go on tours, um, especially in Europe, we would bring those fun savers, uh-huh. <laughs> believe it or not. 
Um, and uh, the fun saver is limited, which um, I think in some ways allows us to uh, think a little bit outside of the box. And some of my like my favorite photos I've ever taken were with the fun saver in Europe. And um, I was always the guy uh, documenting things with my friends, shows, uh, anything. I was always the guy with a camera. And um, it wasn't until Laura Beth, my fiance, actually was um, – noticing how much camera time I was spending, you know, how much time I was spending with the camera. She was like, you know, you take good photos and, um, you know, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, I think you can maybe try to make some money with this. Um, and I didn't believe her at first, um, but it took us having to spend a lot of time talking about it and convincing myself that I could do it. And then me having to come around to seeing some of these photos and realizing that some of them were actually okay. Um, I think it's hard for an artist to look at his work and go, okay, I'm legitimate now, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but it, it took me a little bit of time to get around to that and we've gotten a lot of business for it and it's been paying rent, you know? So, so you mean commercial business? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I've got a little website, uh, rcfurlow.photography and, um, I, I've really enjoyed the time I've had that up. I've been able to take photos for architects and portraits of senior, senior portraits for students and, we do business branding stuff. Um, we just did the Brent's Drugs photos. And, um, well, I knew Laura Beth did that work. That's that's yeah. what she does. Right? Yeah, she's a she's a pretty creative person herself. She uh, makes websites and is a graphic designer. So it kind of went hand in hand with um, with what I was doing and what she was doing. It just kind of added up together to make one big thing. Does she have a separate business from yours? Yeah, it's called Cotton Row Creative, and um, she just makes websites all day, you know, and mm-hmm. she does logo designs and um, type, type, what's that word, typography? Typography you know? Typography. Like that. That's maps or something. No, maybe that's not it. She Either does, way, she, does she like knows type, what she does. Type stuff, <laughs> fonts. Type stuff. No, wait, no, wait. <laughs> Calligraphy. No, that's not it. <laughs> uh, I love these uh, these little quotes here. Oh, uh, Yeah. The, we asked you uh, earlier about a best piece of advice that you've ever been given, and right. the, I like these answers you gave. Well, Trisha Walker, the first one, is um, probably one of the more important people I've ever met in my life, especially with music. Um, she, she says it all the time. I mean, it might as well be tattooed on her. It, it all starts with a song, um, and that's absolutely 100% true. Uh, if there is not a song that is present, then... Um, what are you doing, kind of? Yeah. Right. And I'm, well, by song, I mean, you can use that generally speaking. You can, Story. it can be anything, yeah, you know, right. right. And then the other one is? Oh, yeah, Mark Snyder. Um, Mark was an old professor I had at Delta State. Um, and actually, I never really took a class from him. But he, <laughs> but you knew I, him. <laughs> I knew him really well, and I spent a lot of time in his office, and he told me to be patient with myself uh-huh. um, because that is uh, a thing that I struggle with. I, I, I want what I want when I want it. And if I have a vision, um, I firmly believe that, um, there are things that fight against us in creating the art that we want to make. Um, I don't know what those things are exactly. They can come in many different faces, but, um, I try to treat art sometimes like a war and we're fighting against it. And, um, sometimes I lose those battles. Um, your good friend and my good, my new good friend, uh, Mr. Richard Kelso always says, uh, he has a quote that I think Sherman, said it or uh, I can't remember who exactly said it but it was this civil war quote that says we'll get them tomorrow right. you know we'll get them tomorrow and I, I I love that I love that attitude of you know we'll get them tomorrow right um, and then the third one um, 
was from Will Will Jacks, the uh, the photographer. It says, uh, "Try and tell a story in every photograph you take." Boy, is that not the the, the God honest truth? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Otherwise, delete it. Right. Because no one wants to see it. Right. <laughs> I, I've always admired the way he takes photos and the way he sees things. Um, you know, it's almost like uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how he has the patience to get what he gets, but. Um, he he really can tell a story with every photo he takes, and um, I've admired that through you know being under him and having him in my life. Um, <laughs> these last ones are are, are very uh, I guess me centric, but I think they uh, they have a, a universal understanding. Uh, my dad used to tell me before I had a show, um, pretty much every show, uh, he'd say, "Burn the joint down, grasshopper," <laughs> um, which I think is yeah exactly. Which I think is a good good thing to think about, you know. Um, give it your all. It's kind of that whole um, that football, leave it all out on the field kind of thing. Um, and then to uh, bookend that, he also used to tell me to treat live music like it's a job because it is one. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to always joke around with Dent and some of the guys when we were on tour. I say we really don't get paid to play music. Um, we get paid to move these boxes, these like heavy squares upstairs, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's good and and, the, and then we ask you something about influences and you, you went on for a while <laughs> yeah uh, i mean you how, how talk do you about, answer that i don't know i <laughs> we thought we'd try uh yeah so um the, the just just in my <laughs> just for my own uh sake here i want the audience to know this is the question for an artist all right who are you inspired by question mark okay so for me, um, that's a really hard thing to say, but the first thing I said was Jimi Hendrix um, because uh, he was pretty much the first um, musical entity or um, first music I really fell in love with. But, I mean, it goes on. I mean, Michael Hedges, Harry Nilsson, David Bowie, Mark Rabot, Tuck Andrus, Mark Linkus, David Gilmore, Mozart, uh, Brian Wilson, Brian Eno, Jay Dilla, The Beatles, Mitch Easter, Tupac Shakur. I mean, I can go on, you know, and it's... Um, all of these artists, um, I think the sum of them, um, somewhere in there, uh, creates the things that I'm interested in. <laughs> well, how would you describe for radio listeners what what you do, what, the songs you write, the music you play? I mean, there are all these terminologies out there now, singer-songwriter. Yeah. Uh, I don't know well, what the, they are. but The thing I get the most joy of out of... Out, folk out of, singer... <laughs> right. I like that one. Um, have you ever heard the uh, Muddy Waters record, Folk Singer? It, no. It's it's his it's the most his take on folk. Well, it's 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 a joke actually. It's yeah. really him singing. You know, my home is the Delta, but it's <laughs> the most beautifully recorded record ever. But, oh. um, what uh, I, I would say, I would I would refer Malcolm to you uh, to the second question on this page. What art do you most identify with? To answer that question, mm-hmm. and I said bleeding heart absurdity, which I think is exactly what I try to do. Um, <laughs> I I I don't really believe in um, well for my art my art my own personal stuff. I I like to kind of wear my emotions on my sleeve, um, and I like to do it in a. Uh, kind of an absurd way, whether it's in, you know, titanic pieces of artwork or um, just anything, really. I, I, I like to put my all into it. Um, what do I identify with, I guess, um, is just the, the natural way that these people, these artists are making this art. Um, you know, there's something beautiful. I mean, I'm just picking a, a name on here, but mm-hmm. like Stan Kubrick, for instance. Right. You know, even from his photography when he was, before he was making, you know, um, 
talkies and movies. Um, his photography looked like his movies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this nuance, it's this bleeding heart thing that he couldn't get away from even if he tried. Um, and he exploits that. He knows it. Um, and if he doesn't know it, then that's even cooler. That, that's, <laughs> that's magic, you know. Right. Um, now, you also write film scores and, and music for videos, music for, I guess, commercials, music for commercial application and and films as well right yeah so a few years ago i recently or i guess i'm trying to remember exactly what the day it was but a few years ago i got uh in contact with rough trade publishing um they used to be called bank robber um and uh they started sending me assignments almost like homework for recording music um they'd say all right we need a girl vocalist singing um this 80s new wave pop song but it needs to sound like this modern day goth wave kind of song. And then I'd, be, I'd have to put the pieces together and go find a girl vocalist and then do the arrangements, record the, the music and then, um, you know, get it all put together, mix it and then send it off. And it was always hair on fire. They always only right. had like they two wanted, days, yeah. you know. Um, but, but they always wanted remixes of existing yeah. music, not original music. Well, back then, I mean, that's that's a thing. You know, if you watch commercials nowadays, there's always some sort of uh, common song that you've heard of right. before, and it's redone with either like a ukulele or right. a, you know whatever. And it's, it's where did that start? What is that? I think Arrested Development, the television show. You uh-huh. know, if they always had that that perfect little ukulele. I, I don't know, maybe not, but <laughs> I, I do believe that that there is this, um, especially nowadays, things are kind of trying to bite back from the sentimentality of the past. I think millennials in general are very sentimental people. Um, we believe in the 90s is the best thing ever, you know. Mm. <laughs> well, you got to believe in something. Right, <laughs> right. It's what you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, we we when I was growing up, you know, we were in the 60s, so we were very content with, with our culture and our pop art. But, uh, you know, looking back, I remember now how much I like the stuff from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Didn't know it at the time, my parents' stuff. <laughs> right. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today, and my guest in the studio today is Cole Furlow. Hello, Cole. Hello, Malcolm. We've talked a lot about your early life and your uh, art making, uh, but you've been working recently on producing some shows up at the... Uh, the Lowry some, House. The Lowry House, yeah. which is the home of the... What? What's the organization? Oh, it's the Mississippi Heritage Trust. The Heritage yeah. Trust. That's the one I'm trying to think of. Yeah, they, That's um, a great building, too. Yeah, it's a cool house. Um, it seems like it's almost made for music in some ways because it's got this big wood floor and really tall ceilings. And um, the music we've had in there has been uh, kind of uh, dovetailed in with the, the vibe of that house. Um, and it's been a it's been a nice thing to be able to do that. I've never really... Um, been the show provider or the show promoter. Yeah. Um, unlike, it's a different, uh, it's a unlike, different hat. Unlike the company I'm sitting with here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it seems like it's a it's a whole other world that I really was never used to having to deal with. I was always a talent, you know. Right. And, um, it's you were carrying fun. the big heavy boxes. Right. right, right. <laughs> if you'll notice, the promoter never carries the boxes. Right, right, right. That's true. <laughs> it's one advantage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing about being the promoter, I'm sure it's not true at the Lowry House, is that it's all your money. Yeah. You yeah, have to put all the money up and hope somebody comes. Yeah, it's not it's not the thing we think about the most at the Lowry House other than just, you know, making sure we don't leave a wet cup on some sort of wooden floor or surface or something. Right. You know? 
And what is the address of the Lowry House? It's over there behind the Manship House, <laughs> close to any... the Baptist Hospital parking lot. Yeah, off, I don't know the exact off address. Off of fortification. Right. I don't know. I think it's on Congress it, Street, right? It's, it's tucked back. Yeah, it's um, definitely tucked back. But it's a historic home. Uh, was moved, as I recall. Yeah, I think Used a governor to, lived there at one point in like 1898 or something. It may have been Governor Lowry. Yeah, probably. Who knows? <laughs> but it's a cool old house, and it's the home of the Heritage Trust. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think your fiancé does a little work for them, and that so y'all are kind of working on that as a family project? Right, right. She, um, she got, um, I guess, approached by Lolly uh, Rash, and Lolly was um, kind of interested in the idea of us being able to diversify the the entertainment that goes on in that house mm-hmm. doesn't just have to be um you know uh parties for fundraising events for the heritage trust or um you know it just w- kind of made sense for us to be able to throw somewhat of a diy uh music event there mm-hmm. kind of a pop-up yeah so who all have you had what what Entertain um, what musicians have you had perform? I know you've done two or three shows. Over yeah, there. so the first event we had, um, my buddy Reed Smith, um, his band's called Rod Smith. Um, and I actually, this is the second time I've talked about Reed on MPB, so you're welcome, Reed. <laughs> um, but <laughs> no, it, Rod Smith was great. Um, they are a really fun band, and I was able to record them. Um, I've made, I'm, I just made their, uh, their new record. Um, and then the Guiding Lights, which was a band that uh, used to be around Jackson called uh, Los Los Buddies, uh-huh. and um, we played. I'm playing guitar with them too. And then uh, Kel Kellum played. Who uh, he's this great musician from Oxford. I think he was born and raised in Greenwood, and he's got a really distinct style. And um, Justin Peter Kinkle Schuster, who uh, was one part of the uh, the band The Water Liars. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, he played and kind of brought the the mood really in a nice direction. So Are the water liars not lying anymore? I don't think so. No, oh, okay. I, don't, I don't think so. So those were your shows. Yeah. And and on 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 the studio side, tell me some of the projects that you're working on recording. I know you make records. Yeah. You produce records. Yeah. So production is kind of my 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 thing now. I I like to think of myself more as a producer than a musician these days in general. I, um, for sure, it's more sustainable. Um, I have more fun doing it, which um, I thought I'd never be able to really say that. But, um, and I think I'm kind of good at it. You know, it's. Um, I was told early on that to be a good producer, you have to wear a bunch of different hats. Um, you kind of have to be a, a tech guy. You know, you got to have to know your gear and you have to know the engineering aspects of how these microphones work. And you need to be able to arrange things and you need to have a little bit of taste and a little bit of an encyclopedia of references that you can kind of harken back to if you need to and um then there's like a little psychological uh psycho- psychology to it mm-hmm. where you know if you have an artist that is having a bad day or uh you know whatever you just kind of have to pull it out of them it's kind of like being a little bit of a coach of some sorts where you you know you tell them you can do this and i wrote down on the um this very general questionnaire here. Um, <laughs> I said uh, that my favorite thing is to, um, it's right here, yeah. I enjoy getting people to realize their full potential. Yeah. And that's that's what it's all about for me these days. It's, as, as the producer. Right. I like, I really like bringing in someone I've heard them, you know, play live and I'm like, God, I can make them sound so awesome. I just know I can. And that confidence um, is good and bad, but uh, I, I feel like I'm okay with failing and succeeding <laughs> with that, you know. 
Does the producer have to carry the heavy boxes? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't believe it, but they do. I mean, they have to set up everything, too, you know. <laughs> How many guitars do you own? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, did my mom call you? <laughs> um, uh, I, it's really hard to say. <laughs> Um, Is there someone I could check with? <laughs> I, I really don't know. I mean, I've got a lot. I'm, I, I think it's around 17 or 20 or so. Ah. Um, some of them are kind of more artifact type things. Um, some of them are just kind of like nice door stoppers. Mm -hmm. I just like guitars in general. Um, my favorite new guitar actually uh, is a, not new at all. <laughs> It's a 1976 Fender Starcaster that um, Steve Chester, of all people, sold to me. Oh. Um, old cheese tester. I love that guy. Yeah, he's fabulous. Um, he's actually one of my musical heroes, and for me to own one of his guitars was a really, really big deal. So, Did you take lessons from him? No, no, no. I only took um, lessons for one year of my life in sixth grade, and ever since then it's been the school of hard knocks. Mm. You know. So I want to go back to Mobros, to the mm -hmm. Morrison Brothers Music yeah. Company. Were you there when it finally ended? No, no, no. I'd left before then. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't want that to happen. So it was still a thriving business. Did they still have the production company when you were there? Yeah. When they, we would do the big shows and stuff. Um. Yes. Yes. You know, because they, they not only had the retail store, right. and the lessons. Right. But they also had the big production shop, which would, you know, they would do Jubilee Jam and right. outdoor festivals and concerts right. and they big did, shows at Howlin' Mouse. They stuff. did some of that production stuff when I was still there. Um, but really, for me, it was selling keyboards and guitars and um, hanging out with guys like Clint Deere and, you know, Steve Chester and Matt Coates, those guys, you know. Mm. Um, it was for a while there. Um, I don't know. I loved it. I I enjoyed being in that store, and I, I remember getting the job. It was a big deal because, you know, that's where I grew up going to play guitar and hearing things for the first time and picking up Les Pauls and things like that, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not a musician, uh, though I've been around them all my life. Um, but I know that Morrison Brothers Music Company was a, a holy grail place, as was bebop. Oh, yeah. Know, did you grow up? You grew up in Jackson. You had yeah. to have grown up in bebop. Oh, yeah, I did. Ever worked there? Never worked there. I um I bought a million records there though. <laughs> right. I mean, I probably blew all my savings and allowance money there. What about ZZQ? Do you remember that? <laughs> no, but I I have a studio above Sergio Fernandez, and um you know I, I think I've got all the ZZQ I need. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it goes on forever. I love Sergio, man. He's he's actually becoming one of my mentors as well because I love the way he works and I love the stories he has and um he lets me borrow gear from him and. I'm really, really thankful to have Sergio in my life, too, you know. So. Yeah, Sergio Fernandez uh, is uh, a fixture uh, down at the uh, historic warehouse in downtown Jackson. And, uh, he, Just say uh, it already. <laughs> he, I remember when he and David Adcock were partners. Oh, yeah, Tunesville, uh, too. I did grow up on that. Well, that was David's show, but the two of them had, it was called... Fernandez, Fernandez Adcock Creative Services. Right. They used to actually do that business together. Right. And, of course, they were both DJs on ZZQ and mm -hmm. friends. And, of course, Sergio's also a musician, plays great keyboards right, with these days keyboard. and other jazz night, Tuesday night jazz night in the historical warehouse in downtown. With Raphael. Yeah. That's right. So what are, you, what are you working on? I mean, what's new? And we talked a lot about what you do, but is there some new stuff, like a, a new show or a, a new record? Or I know we have a new song because we heard it at the beginning <laughs> yeah. of the hour. But uh. um, 
So last year, um, I kind of made my new, a new record, um, which was something that I didn't think I, I was really planning on doing, but I made an instrumental record of um, kind of meditative guitar pieces. Um, I think in nowadays it would be um, pigeonholed as uh, new age music or mm. something like Wyndham Hill Records. Um, do you listen to Hearts Hearts of Space every Sunday? And, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, me too. I, I love there's it. A, there's a club of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that listen to Hearts and to uh, Echoes. Echoes. Yeah. John DiLiberto. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Hearts of Space. Me and my friend Tyler Tadlock, um, who is also an incredibly talented musician in, in Jackson, who um, he goes by the the name Spirituals. He actually just released a record. Um, but Tyler and I pretty much text each other, you know, five minutes before on Sunday and it's like, HOS, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. all right, man. It's like, we got the decoder, co- you know, the coder rings on, you know. Yeah. Bill Ellison and I do that. It's, it's like phenomenal. 10 minutes. It's 10 minutes before Hearts of Space. Right. I mean, the way that guy has done that show and, and it's so professional how, you know, it, it, the, the music goes to a point every 30 minutes and then. It gets to that the deep zone, yeah. you know, the, the deep zone. <laughs> and I love the sound so effects. I, I I love all of it. Yeah. Uh, the voice, the tempo. Yeah. And uh, it's got intention, you know. It's, every word. Right. Right. <laughs> has intention. Yeah. Do you listen to it, Kevin? You're a radio guy. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's one of the beautiful programs that the Mississippi Public Broadcasting offers. Yeah, and I think we should uh, we should do a fundraiser for Hearts of Space yeah. and Echoes. I, I think they're. But this record that I made, going back to that, would be perfect. They're not getting on, enough love, is what I'm trying to say here. It would be perfect on Hearts of Space, actually. So, um, yeah, if if I think his name's Stephen, if he, if he's listening, Stephen um, Hill. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I made that record, and then I just got done scoring a, a, a film from a friend of mine named Philip Scarborough. I know Philip. Um, and it's a uh, it's this really big piece of music. Um, I was really thankful to be able to do it with him. We had um, a professional violinist from the symphony come in and rip a piece of music that I wrote. And right now, um, I'm kind of figuring out what's next. I mean, it, you know, Reed's record is almost done. It's um, it's in the final stages, and um, I've got a friend of mine who's more like a mentor, um, Clay Jones. He actually worked at Sweet Tea back in right. the day. And he was um, played guitar with... Oh God, a lot Lots of people. Of people. Yeah. Yeah. Nielsen Hubbard. I used to see. Oh, Nielsen. I used to see yeah. Nielsen. Yeah. Actually, um, I wrote it. I wrote this in the questionnaire. But uh, seeing Clay uh, at Helen Mouse in '99, I believe, or 2000, was one of the moments that I realized that's what I wanted to do. Um, he knows that I think at this point now. But um, <laughs> he's helped me in so many ways, and you know, without all the formal training, um, his training and his his tutelage of you know, working mics and um, figuring out what's tasteful and good on, on microphones. It, a lot of it came from him, you know, so. How long does it typically take to make a record? Or is there anything typical about a process like that? <laughs> there's, there's nothing typical about it, okay. actually. I didn't we can, figure there would be. We but, can make one. But, I mean, when they come in and say, I have this concept, I want to make a record, what do you all gen- generally say? Oh, okay, well, let's put aside a month. Right. Let's put aside two weeks. Right. Um. So it depends on the band, obviously. So like with Reed's record, for instance, the Rod Smoth record, um, there's three guys, um, and they sounded like songbird angels when you see them live. And I remember seeing them in Hattiesburg at the Thirsty Hippo and being like, all right, I want to record this band, um, and I don't want to do 
anything to it. <laughs> I just, just want to get it. I want to throw the mics up. Right. I want to throw the mics up, and the only no producing, <laughs> the only producing that's going to happen is me just being like, "All right, guys, let's do that take again, or let's do this again." Um, so with that record, it was one of those things where it's like, "Yeah, we can knock out five songs in this weekend, and then we can rock, knock out you know five more in this this next weekend." So inevitably, um, your plans do not go the way they're supposed to, and I would say that's about eight times out of ten, maybe. Maybe seven times out of ten, your plans do go exactly right. But um, setting aside a lot of time is something that initially occurs at first, yes, but it never really sticks to that. You know, well, how do people pay? I mean, how do they budget such a thing? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you may be easy because you're a one man show and you have yeah. your own space, but you go into uh, a big time studio, you can't say, "Well, we're just going to see what's happening." Right. Well, I think that's uh, you've kind of touched on the classic uh, crux of art in general. You know, I mean, it's how do you put some sort of price on creativity? And um, I, for the most part, I don't. And how I do mean, you I, say this is a wrap? Right. Um, so kicking out of the door, that's what I call that process. It's or or as some people like to call it, you know, kind of killing off your babies or killing off, you know, something that you really love. But. Uh, for me, it's kicking it out of the door, and I don't think I'm ever really all the way finished. Right. Um, I think that takes time and um, age to realize when something is done, and I think I've actually just now for the past two years started to realize when things are done for real. And uh, at first it was you're never done, you know. It's I always heard this rumor, I don't know if this is true or not, um, that Pablo Picasso would go into uh, museums and with, like, paintbrushes and things and— Trying to fix paintings on the wall. I don't know if that's true or not. You can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. Maybe back in the day. I always think if you know if Picasso is doing that stuff, then I, I don't feel too crazy thinking this. You know. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cole, for coming in. Yeah, this and, is great. Uh, and uh, visiting with us and sharing some of your music. That about does it for the Mississippi Arts Hour today. We'll see you next Sunday, as we do every Sunday at five o'clock on MPB Think Radio.